that the power of Christ compels you. That the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. My name is Robert Landrum. <laughs> and pouring a glass of beer is Jamie Roberts. What are you doing? My name is Jamie Roberts. Okay, start. start. <laughs> what the fuck were you doing there? All right, let's go. All right. And this is the Running Scared Podcast. Where we review the movies and make the jog casts that will have you running away but coming back for more. Uh, what little, is going on, Rob? How are you doing? Little plug in the intro, eh? You mix it Always, up man. Me. I'm putting it in there now because you know what? We review horror films. We make jog casts in equal parts. So I feel like if we're being true to what we do and we're being true to what we want to do in the future, we have to include Jogcast into our intro. But anyways, man, how you doing? This is, um, it has been like a couple of weeks. It's been a couple of busy weeks. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's up? Oh man, I've been doing a lot. Uh, I was in Toronto last week. I saw our buddy Yick, had a good uh, dinner with him and our friend Allison, uh, caught up with him. And uh, I also, uh, well, and I did the Terry Fox run, uh, so I was raising donations, as you guys know from our last pod. Um, I raised about eight hundred eighty-five bucks, and uh, Yick nice. did not contribute, so I gave him some shit over dinner. But yeah, so Yick, yeah didn't, I, Yick didn't contribute. No, not a dime, man. Not a dime. It's okay. We're taking money from on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> he finally right. got that. He finally got the credit card sorted out. <laughs> yeah, I think he said that too. Actually, yeah. So I raised almost a thousand. That was my goal, a thousand. Anyways, man, like, yeah, that's, uh, that's so good. What, um, you know, it's funny, like, uh, we talk about Terry Fox and which is such a great campaign, such a great, um, I, not a movement, but just something that continues to move people in this country. Mm-hmm. You know what else moved me, Rob, when you said it to me, the smile campaign oh, that was yeah. going on at baseball. I have like, if we want to talk about something horrific to see, yeah, you know, during America's, you know, um, pa- national pastime baseball. What is up with this smile campaign? Yeah, so I I haven't looked too much into this movie. The movie's about to come out. It's a new horror movie. It makes me think a little bit like, is it uh, does it have some sort of like spinoff from this from the sadness? Like, is there a relationship there? Only because it's like these people have this menacing, uncontrollable, like freaky smile, right? And so for the campaign, they've positioned people in Major League Baseball games, usually in pretty good seats, by the way. They're wearing a T-shirt that says "Smile," and they just stand there and give this creepy evil smile towards camera and they don't stop as long as the camera's rolling they keep going um i'm sure their cheeks are hurting by the end of this game but it is pretty creepy and people are like assembling these on twitter and they're like holy shit they're at the atlanta game oh they're in the they're at the jays game they're you know and so um yeah i just thought it was a pretty clever campaign i just thought that was a cool one to mention if you guys have seen it uh movie should be out soon it kind of made me interested in the movie i gotta tell you i think it's been effective in that regard yeah, it's innovative in the sense that, you know, I didn't notice you had to send it to me. But then when I started watching the clips and the videos from it, you know, they're, and they've chosen big cities. It's like Boston and then New York. It's like really creepy. And it's something that just, if you don't notice it right away, if you're looking for it, like you send it to me, you notice it. But if you aren't noticing it and it just kind of, kind of builds and then, after a while, you know what I mean? You'd be looking at this and I just, I watched it for a while and it's, it is, it's like really weird, but it can be effective. And over time, you know, you would absolutely notice it. So I think, what is it, you know what I mean? Really, what are they saying without saying is that marketing and marketing campaigns 
this is creative. It's innovative. It's different. It's new. It's trying to engage the the viewer in a different way. And I guess only time will tell when this movie comes out if people actually go and see it if it was effective or not. But definitely, man, I give him thumbs up, hats off for doing something a little bit um, a little bit off the board. Oh, smile, and absolutely, smile campaign. Yeah, absolutely. They'll, they'll be getting the impressions out of it with all the retweets and everything. And it, and I think what you're right, it, it is innovative because it makes you feel like it kind of uh, like knocks down the fourth wall where like the movie's entering our real life. So pretty clever. Uh, speaking of clever, Jamie, uh, we put, we Ooh, do. Nice produce- segue. I was actually, you just took that out of my mouth, man. I was like, going to be speaking of innovative. <laughs> That's right. We do job casts and uh, we did update our Patreon to make it much more easy to enter. And we would totally appreciate your support. You can enter as low as, is it $1 gets you in the door? Just it's like, a buck. Yeah. It's yeah, a just, buck for a free job cast. Yeah. Thanks for coming. And then uh, three bucks gets you two job casts and five bucks a month gets you all three and if you join the slasher mode which is uh only to the first uh, few people that join in you get all job casts for all time as they come out and we are working on the fourth so um okay so this is our 40th episode yeah rob i think let's just take a minute to kind of just yeah congratulations buddy you know we got to 40 episodes and Wow, it started as a passion project during the COVID times, and it's continued into something that that honestly is a part of me. It's a piece of me. I love doing it. It reminds me of when I was like playing across Ontario and Cyprian. It's a it's a new thing. I um, I'm actually just put the order in for a new sort of a, a MIDI controller because I want to get back into kind of crafting some music for some of these upcoming jogcasts when I have some time, so we can actually have some original creative music in you know throughout the whole throughout the whole jogcast. So I'm excited about that, but. Um, our 40th episode, we put a poll out and we took some classic movies. We took Poltergeist, we put Jaws on it, we put Exorcist, we put Nightmare on Elm Street, and what came, Nightmare on Elm Street, and what came out on top was the 1973 William Friedkin classic, The Exorcist. Yeah. And this is the movie that we watched. This is the movie that we will review, discuss tonight. Yeah, based on the novel by William Blatley, I think he has something to do with adapting this to screen, does he not? If we check the credits. Um, one thing we should point out, Jamie, is that we, you and I, I think we both watched a updated version of The Exorcist. It doesn't really change the movie very much, but the version was called uh, The Version You Haven't Seen Before or something like that. And basically it was like a, a new producer slash director cut where they added about 10 extra minutes. Most of it's at the front end of the film where they pad out a little more about each character. They kind of give you a little more uh, peekaboo into their life before the shit hits the fan. <laughs> um, does it add much to the movie? I don't know if you need it, but at the same time for people who are sort of, especially because The Exorcist has now become a, uh, a series, like a tr- it's a trilogy. I think they did a TV show. Like it's got a lot more to it now. And I think for those uh, hardcore fans, maybe there's a little more there to educate you or to like tie in how it relates to some of those sequels and prequels that have come out. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is one of the movies that sort of sits in the pantheon of like classic, classic horror films. Like you said, spawned all those sequels. Actually, it spawned a a, a reboot, a new film, The Exorcist, to, and it's going to be coming out in 2023. Guess what studio got a hold of this? If anything is happening in horror these days, at least on the say somewhat mainstream level more independent but now definitely moving into the mainstream uh blumhouse got a hold of this so they're doing one that's going to be released i took a look at the trailer and didn't really didn't offer a whole lot um so i'll have to wait and see if if anything else comes out we'll take a a quick look at that before 
But Rob, as always, to start these films off, we want to just do a quick summary of the plot, and we do that in our own special running scared way, where we take a look at the plot and try to deliver it to the listeners through the one-line challenge. Rob, count me in. Three, two, one. The Exorcist. A classic revenge story. Where the devil seeks out his arch nemesis through the vassal of a little girl in a quiet, quaint, Georgetown neighborhood. The Exorcist. All right, all right, all right. Sounded, See, you, you thought... Sounded a little scripted, but all right, all right. No, 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 Rob, that was not scripted. Yeah. Rob, that was not scripted. That was just me thinking about... <laughs> <laughs> what? Did you just like read the IMDb right there? No, I swear to God. That was just me completely thinking about the film, distilling it down to the level at which I felt comfortable offering it to our listeners. Mm. And that and that's what I provided. That's what I felt the story is. You know, when I think about it, that's what the story really is. All right. All right. Okay, Rob, you're up. Three, two, one. The Exorcist. A mother struggles to to untangle the problems within the mind of her child. It's not uh, as she goes through the medical system, the psychological medical system, (laughs) and finally the religious system, to find out that her child is possessed by a demon. The Exorcist. Rob, I thought you were giving me the tagline Stranger Things. <laughs> well, see, to me, you said it's about this finding the arch nemesis, but the the hero that you're alluding to doesn't show up to like the last act of the movie, really. And to me, it's more about the mother dealing with the problem, like dealing with this kid. Like, how do I how do I help her? You know, it's funny. She's she was the star. That's a piece of the film. But when you really kind of like, if you really whittle it away, if you whittle it away, this is, and, and this is what I thought, this is, this is a revenge story of, of a demon that was, that was outed, that was wronged by a priest and, and the demon or devil's journey to get back at that priest in the most horrific way possible. But, but you only know that because of the sequel. You don't know that from this movie. Like he alludes to the fact that he kind of knows who this devil is, but you don't get much explanation on that in this movie. It's like one. No, line. no, no. Uh, what do you? No, I'm just. I, listen, I haven't seen the sequel in a long time. Let's 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 get through the structure and let me just. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out my. I'm gonna lay out the case for you. Okay, I'm gonna lay out my case. This has been called. The scariest film ever made. And Rob, I want to ask you, let's just do this right now. What makes a film scary? In your estimation, if we were going to put together a criteria, if we we're going to put together a list, what makes a movie scary? And then let's think about what that list looks like and and put it up against The Exorcist. Boy, you're such a teacher, eh? You always need your rubric to like... Uh... Well, I just feel like, you know what? You know what I mean? I'm not into traditional assessment. I'm an expectation-based assessment specialist, Rob. <laughs> This is crazy. <laughs> I'm okay. actually, 
I'm actually going to be on stage November 10th down at the uh, Delta Chelsea Hotel uh, <laughs> in one, in the technology, con- I swear to God, the technology conference I'm presenting on expectation-based assessment. But anyways, this is a horror podcast, mm. not a assessment podcast. But seriously, this has been called the scariest film ever. I don't, I don't feel like you can make that statement without actually taking a look at like what makes a film scary and then what do you think you know you want some criteria okay let's yeah so, let's just break it down real simple what's I which mean, criteria what do, you, what do you gotta have to make a scary movie do you do you need to do you need the crowd to actually scream or like bodily react like have their body go Whoa, or like Ugh, or you know something like that i i think yeah but i think that could be I think the catalyst for that could be a number of things. It could be something extremely mentally disturbing. It could be something that was really mm, gory. But disturbing and... does disturbing always make you like shout? Like disturbing makes my body like cringe or like tighten up. But does it make me go ah? Like you know, like is I feel like there's a difference between disturbing and scary. Psychologically disturbing when you're thinking about it later and you're like. You know, it keeps gnawing away inside your brain a little bit, like the sadness does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fucked. But when in paranormal paranormal activity, when you've got the they, you know, they've got the camera set up and they're filming themselves at night and the sheet comes off the the bed. That is like disturbing. Is that something does that I, make I find go- that scary. I don't yeah, find it I disturbing. Find, well, that's I find them both. I find it disturbing that the fact that the sheets coming off the people sleeping and I find it fucking scary and I go, ah. So I think there needs to be an abrupt sense of fear that in, in a scary film. There needs to be things that happen that completely disturb you, not scare you, but I think that absolutely needs to be there. Do you need to have a physical in terms of the villain or do you need gore do you need blood for things to be extremely scary no because you can see it you can see a gory horror movie that just makes you laugh okay like tremors and or like that's not even that gory but like there's other ones where you just kind of chuckle the whole time yeah you're not really scared of like uh what did we what did we review with ari what was that movie chopping (laughs) Chopping mall chopping mall doesn't scare me okay do you need do you need extreme tension? Do you need that build that 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 where where the body tenses and you ha- never have relaxed? That, I think that needs to be there. Yeah, I think it helps for sure in terms of overall impact of the film. But okay. definitely, yeah. Do you have anything else you're you're hinging on? Well, I think that like I think sort of those are the those are the main things. I think there needs to be some scares, like you said, that make you go ah. I think there needs to be tension. I think there needs to be a deep seated sense that you would never want to be in that situation that that is happening in this film. Mm. If we take even just those simple things and put it up against The Exorcist, it's hard to say because we've never seen all the films, we've never seen all the horror films. How do you rate this film, Rob, as just a scary movie? Well, let me throw one more thing into this little rubric that you're building here. And it, okay. it really kind of, it kind of is central to this film. And that is belief. If you don't believe in the bad guy, you aren't scared of him usually. Like uh, Chucky doesn't scare me, even though Chucky does some scary things. Like as a concept, I'm not really scared of him. I don't. I don't. I mean, I guess it, I guess just people who stare at dolls for a while and you'll be like, oh, "What if that doll was alive?" I mean, that they've definitely hit on something that's been used a million times. But my point is with this one, 
because it's religion based. Yeah, there you go. And it's Catholicism, and those people who are you know devoutly Catholic, they they may have or probably do consider the idea that devils and demons exist. I mean, if you believe that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. Put the whole George Carlin clip in here because I love that fucking bit. That means you also believe, potentially you believe. Believes in the devil. He believes in a little red guy with a fucking tail with a hook in it and horns, you know, and a pitchfork. He's a little guy with a pitchfork. I'm the devil. Hey, devil, what do you got that pitchfork for? My pitchfork is to give... Give evildoers little pokes in the tuchus. <laughs> uh, that's from uh, David Cross. Uh, but like the idea that there is some sort of counter force that is horrible and evil and actually prides himself and enjoys the torture and the, um, you know, they say it actually kind of eluquently in the film. Like, what is the point of this demon? And the, the, the priest says, I think he wants to dehumanize us to make us feel like animals, like we're nothing better than, than animals. So the demons have this purpose to sort of like grind us down and make us into less yep. than human. So if, you, if you're like a religious person and you believe that there is potentially this idea like if, <laughs> that these things exist, like this could be ultra scary, right? Because it really yep. hinges on you. Like it's really like tapping into your deep-seated personal beliefs. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really good point because this movie was made in 1973. And at that point, Catholicism you know i think you would say 50 years later not as big in the united states where this movie was released but that at that point massive there's over 1 billion catholics and i'm not sure that this kind of content within framed within you know the the catholic church had had been released before so this was something that was absolutely scary people have been learning about in the bible for hundreds of years but to see it on screen and to see the adaptation from the book, I think, would, would have terrified people, religious people, to absolutely to the to the soul. And, so and, I th- yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, and I think that's a great point, the idea of belief. You know, for things to be scary, you need to believe. And But here's the thing, though. Do you really need to believe in, in like, this movie achieves a few things. It achieves extreme fear with that belief, but I still feel like it, it achieves fear without yeah, it was interesting in the film, they actually, like the doctors don't go as far as saying, oh, she's possessed. But they do say something to the effect of she could believe that she's possessed yeah, to the yeah. point that she's like bodily damaging herself and you know manifesting this kind of second personality. Which I thought was interesting because it was like a nice way to dance on the line to be like, even if you don't believe in religion, you might believe in the potential that her belief system has created this within her. But it, it does go to that point of like, you know, <laughs> you're talking about like yeah, every, a lot of people, of course, super familiar with the Bible. A lot of people read it head to toe. And you think about all the artwork that's been made of the Bible and how much like horror art has been made over the years about the Bible, like Dante's Inferno. Yes. Um, what's, his, what's that painter's name that paints the scenes of hell? Like this guy made a living off that, right? This guy was making scenes of hell. Like that yeah. was his thing. Bosch? Yeah. Harmonious Bosch. Bosch. Like this goes back to our Event Horizon pod. Like, 
like you can think of some pretty nasty shit and say, yeah, that's what those devils do, man. That's what they do. They fucking peel your eyeballs out. Like they're <laughs> nasty. Like the worst thing you can think of, that's what these guys do. Okay. So is this movie scary then? Let's say in 1973, you're going to see this film. Nothing has really been made like it before. You might be religious. You might be not. Are you, are you scared when you see this film? Yeah, I think if you do the context and you sat down in 1973, yes. Now, like there's even – Did it hold up, Rob? Mm, No, because I don't think I was scared at any point in the film at all. I uh, – and there's effects that really don't obviously, you know, last. Like they don't work in today's time. When she spins her head around, she literally looks like a doll. (laughs) Like you're like, okay, like I know how you did that. It's not that like – Kids can do that at home now for their like TikTok videos. Like it's not it's not hard to do like tricks like that. So like there's like things like that that just don't hold up. What it does still hold up in the sense that it's disturbing. And there's this, you know, 14 year old actor playing a 12 year old who's doing some pretty nasty shit, saying some pretty nasty words. Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. You know, at one point violently stabbing herself in the groin area with a cross. Like it's those things like. Those will stay with you. What did you make of, and I completely agree, what did you make of the the flashes of of the demon? There's three... The there's face. Three, the, yeah. To me, that still gets me to this day. It still gets me. So, so at this point, there's actually three different parts in the film where the face of the demon appears. And it's for, I want to say like, um, like an eighth of a second. Like it's very, very quick. And I'll tell you where I've seen that before. But um, it's in Regan's dream. It's in Father Karras's dream. And there's a really, really cool scene where she's coming into the home and it's near the end of the film and she's in the kitchen. And to me, this one actually seemed a bit forced, but the face appears in the... Um, in the stainless steel like overhang of the of the stove you remember seeing that you kind of just see it abruptly rob that's scary yeah that's good but you're right uh but the second one by the way father uh karis karis it's not a dream he's actually in the room with her at that point well he's like it's a it's a lightning crash and so the lights are coming in and out and he sees it for a brief second but isn't he he's no he's he's also He's also thinking about his. Are you sure? I think he's mm-hmm. also thinking about it or dreaming about his mother going down the stairways or going down the subway steps. Oh, it's in that sequence too. Then that means the face must be four times. Is it four times? Okay, so he's yeah. It's where he sees his mother, and that's a constant. Yeah, and she goes down the steps, which oh. makes him think he, she's going to hell, right? Exactly right. And then the face, and then just like the black face, and like the red and the white, like it was. And you know what? When I was watching it for for this review, I knew to expect it at the times where I knew it was coming. But when Regan was possessed and she was undergoing all the tests in the hospital and she was like completely in her, what is almost like a catatonic state and the silhouette comes, it caught me off guard. And all of a sudden, I like, the chills come. Everything Mm -hmm. is just like, I was like, oh, nice. Like great scare. Yeah. You know where that's from, eh? Or you know where I think, or I think he may have, uh, taken it from is I'm just saying um, Polanski's Rosemary's baby right at the end mm. where they look in the crib and it's the face of devil. It's like a quick little flash and then you see it, you know, it's, it's, it's something just to kind of pop 
to drop an idea, to seed an idea Mm -hmm. in your mind. Mm -hmm. I think it's very effective and still holds up today. I looked this up because you were uh, taking, you were making notes about it. And the demon whose uh, name is Pazuzu. uh, That's right. He's been identified through Wikipedia and other places. Very specific devil that does come from, I believe, classic literature somewhere. And the demon slash Regan is essentially three different actors. It's Linda Blair plays Regan. Um, the voice acting, though, when she's speaking through, as Pazuzu is Mercedes McCambridge, who was old-time, I think, a radio uh, actress at one point, too. I think she's half Canadian or something. Okay. And then Aline Dietz. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Dietz. Dietz. She plays the face. She also did some of the um, stunt double work for... She was Linda the face? Blair. Yeah. So it's a totally different actress. Obviously, oh, it's, cool. it's not Linda Blair who plays the face. So I found that kind of interesting that the devil, this character is kind of a composition of three different acting uh, approaches, right? Like one person's just doing voice work. One person is uh, the the body, the child. And then this face that sort of just pops in now and again and just, can you imagine shooting those face scenes? Like I just, I wonder what the direction was like, okay, uh, <laughs> look crazy. Uh, looks, looks scary. All right. It has like that vampire, like, uh, oh, what's that? What's that famous Nosferatu? vampire? Nosferatu? No, not, not, not Nosferatu. The other dude. Um, Blade. Bella Lugosi kind of like the over-the-top makeup. Oh, but it's it, all white kind of. Yeah. Yeah. The face is creepy because it's human, but not really human. Like something not quite human. It's got this uncanny effect, which I find really unsettling and interesting. It's It's scary. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, you know, you talked about the three different characters that are playing the voices. And, you know, when you say that, the first thing I think of is when Marin is talking to Father Karras and Karras goes, I think there's three. And then Marin goes, there is only one. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and just points to the singular. The whole idea is always between good and evil. We, we are in agreement. This is a scary film that retains a lot of um, a lot of its scare even today. The total desecration, the total um, uh, decomposition of Linda Blair yeah. she goes through, which is just it's, she's that, young. It's that's like, horrific in itself, man. Just it like because she's a twelve-year-old girl to think that the devil is not just—it's like. This is like the Game of Thrones version. It's taking its time. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's the mm-hmm. long book. It's 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 playing with its its victim. It can do what it wants. It and can playing, break. F- it's definitely playing because it like like we were saying before. What is the end game here for the demon? Like, what does he really want? It, the end game was her as bait. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm saying. Okay, let me go back and and let me just jump into this right now. Okay, this is a revenge story because at some point in the film. It's alluded to Father Marin that was involved in, you know, when they call him in, he was involved in an exorcism in Africa that took two to three years. Mm-hmm. Now, 12 years ago. It tw- yeah, exactly. It, it, sorry, it took two to three months about 12 years ago. I'm going to assume it was the same demon or if it was the same devil or they got to be all hooked up together in hell. So if you wrong one, you wrong the other. <laughs> It is, it is uh, if you go look at the Wikipedia for the Exorcist sequels and prequels, it is um, the, same, the same demon. So there, it's so, so I, there you go. So when the devil is, is coming to look back, like there's a, couple of, there's a couple of key points, right? At the beginning, Marin 
faces off against Pazuzu. He's the one that that's starting, you know, I mean, he's got the saccharine container. He's feeling all crazy. And then you have um, you have uh, Linda Blair when she's possessed. And as soon as he walks in, when he's called in, right? Marin! And it was really, I think, to pull him back into a position where he was vulnerable. Eventually, Marin is killed. So the revenge is... The revenge story is complete, but th- that that's the way I see it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think uh, the other part that's scary and it's interesting, like it doesn't scare me, but more, I like the psychological factor that Pazuzu can kind of like know things about you, and that's why he keeps picking on Father Karis for her mother and speaking his mother and speaking in her voice, and sort of oh you've left me. It's also interesting, and I wonder how this was thought of at the time. Because, you know, we know in retrospect now that the Catholic Church had a lot of, how do I delicately talk about this, Jamie? Don't say, don't, don't be delicate about it. They have have a lot of homosexuals in the church. Absolutely. Many probably went into the church with a certain thought in mind to like repress their sexuality. And this is the choice they're making to help them in that quest in a certain way. Pazuzu calls Marin the F word, you know, the the gay slur word, uh, I think more than once, but you know, he says it and it makes you wonder, like, does he know that about him, that he is yeah. gay or is he just like calling him out to just trying to get him off, off his game? Yeah. He's coming in yeah. for the exorcist, you know? But- I also love that Pazuzu has a bit of a British accent, which tells you where <laughs> fucking devils come from. <laughs> Colonial bastards. <laughs> so, Jimmy, another thing I thought interesting about Pazuzu is like he has this kind of ability to see the past and the future and he even speaks not in riddle, but he kind of says things sometimes that kind of come, like they come true later. So at one point, Father uh, Karras is first time he's ever meeting Regan and Regan switches voices and he says something like, What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Regan? It would bring us together. You and Regan. You and us. Uh, why? Uh, like even like Pazuzu seems looking forward to the exorcism, and he says because it'll bring her and Father Karras together. And at the time, I didn't understand what he meant. And then later on in the film, Pazuzu literally jumps out of Regan's body and into Father Karras, and he's able to fight him off enough to jump out the window and kill himself, thereby potentially capturing the demon and killing the demon within his own body. Everything Pazuzu says, you kind of got to read it with multiple lenses because he's, you know, he's he can see more than most people can. Yeah, I'm watching the film and the amount of manipulation that this devil is imparting on, like, the entire movie and everybody around him is pretty crazy. Your mother's in here with his cash. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. It's funny. It is directly related to the priests. Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karras, you faithless swine. Do not see any any aspersions cast against the mother when she's in, other than just vulgarity directed sort of, um, or I I would say vulgarity, um, displays of vulgarity from her Mm -hmm. daughter to make her feel uncomfortable. Rob, did you ever think, you know, one of the things we talked about is like the idea of symbols, the idea of language, the idea of like, priests being able to bless water and use Mm. that as like a weapon against the devil at 
I, you know, at no point did I ever feel like the priests were winning in this exorcism <laughs> against this. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, did you ever feel as it got more severe and it got more intense, I didn't feel like this was going to be a happy ending. And we see that it doesn't. I don't know. What did you, what did mm -hmm. you, what did you take from it? Right. Especially when he comes in the first time and like, guy, <laughs> guy comes in, he throws a little bit of water down and then she starts burning, right? Like the initial, the initial kind of burn. And then all of a sudden, you know, Pazuzu wasn't having any of it. He's levitating. He's like putting green slime all over that purple scarf that like then Karis is going to the he washroom and puking fucking, on people's faces. He's got the Clorox out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, I never felt that. I never felt the good guys were winning. And no. maybe that's, a, maybe that's another reason why this film is so disturbing. Yeah, for sure. And it's going back to your point about the mother, I think you're right. It speaks to the manipulation of Pazuzu trying to get Marin in the room. Like to, to get Marin in the room, he needs to freak out the mom enough for yeah. her to seek out a new kind of help beyond the medical system. And he knows that through the church, uh, they might send Marin. So he's like, he doesn't need to like get inside her head so much as he just needs to keep scaring her and just keep being repulsive and gross and like not being Regan, making it clear that like this is never something Regan would say. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like it gets pretty dark. It never seems like they're going anywhere. I, I do think it, there are some things the priests have going for them. And that is like the holy water and their ability to like, they kind of, there is a point near the end where it does seem like they've almost pulled him out of her. And it's all through language, right? This is, I find that one of the most interesting things about religion, not that I'm religious, but like, I do think that the, how much of the like idea of like celestial God power comes from language. Like, is the Bible, is it just me or where does this come from? Maybe it's the Jewish Bible or whatever it is called. The, but like, we're clearly uh, not biblical scholars. No, here, no. But doesn't it start with like, in the beginning, there was the word and the word was God. I think that's, okay. that's a famous quote, to, right? Listen, I, I got to get my wife on the bat phone here. Yes. Oh, ha, ha. Remember me, old chum? You jolly devil. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's out there somewhere. She's she's Italian. She's the Catholic in the family, um, but I think you're probably, if not, you know, correct verbatim, close to. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure I learned this in school somewhere. But anyway, it's the same with the priests. Like all their religious, all their power over the demon comes from their language. They bless the water, and thereby it becomes a weapon. Regular water doesn't do shit, uh, but if it comes from them and it's been blessed, then it's it's got some sort of extra god power. And then the priests, of course, speak by reading the, the Bible and like, you know, what's the what's the, the quote like, that we're going to put as our drop here? Um, oh, this is the power of Christ compels you. 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 Yeah. The power of Christ compels you. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. The power. Think about think about that phrase. The power of Christ compels you. All that is, is the power, the amalgamated belief mm -hmm. of all those who, who believe compels you that good shall overtake evil. That's it. You know, so this movie vacillates between is it real? Is it not? 
the belief, the non-belief. That's what I love about it is that you can, you can really mingle and tangle with this in so many different ways. Isuzu, you know, is exhausting, obviously. Like Linda's, like Regan's falling apart, right? And uh, she is like way past her bodily ability to fight him. But before that, even even before we get to that, even before we start realizing like, oh, this is like a devil in her body, there's this long 40 minutes of Regan going through the gauntlet of the medical system. And you know, we're going to try this drug. And now we're going to try this drug. Oh, let's look at the CAT scan. Oh, I think we did it wrong. Let's try it again. And, you know, everybody giving the mother new opinions and trying to, try, you know, they're doing their job. They're trying to like um, – eliminate any possibilities but you know at one point we finally get to the point where she's sitting there with like 30 doctors around her and she says something like are you fucking kidding me like you got you got stop feeding me this bullshit you got 80 doctors and none of you can fucking do anything and then the one guy's like well yeah the long shot here is go ask the church to see if they'll have sense of priest like he's given up but at the same time at least he that was what we were saying before he puts in this sense of like well she could have convinced herself that she's possessed and that could be the problem. But there is like some very not scary uh, to me, but like definitely unsettling and like disturbing and kind of like uncomfortable scenes of Regan going through the medical system with like all the needles and the, and then the actual CAT scans and the loud noises those, those machines make. Like you really feel for her in the sense that like, man, she's going through a lot and they still don't know anything. At one point, and I think this speaks to Ellen Burstyn's character. I think I think her her the best part of her performance is how she deals with the doctors. She is so exasperated. She is loving her daughter, and you know, at one point, the doctor, the lead doctor, comes back and says, uh, "You know, we think it's this. We we he I think he says we still think it's something, but." Um, we're going to go do another spinal tap. And she just goes, oh, another spinal tap. Like she's, she's mentally and physically exhausted. And, and then, and then she has to go back in and you just see her through all these, all these tests. And one of the, I, I love that he put it in where the doctors were looking at it and he, they just go, it's clean. There's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think about how the film is positioned is, you know, clearly, I think, and I don't know if Friedkin is a religious man himself or if it just served into what the film called for. But, you know, to me, it spoke to the narrative that, you know, um, traditional scientific medicine, you know, is not going to solve everything. At some point, you know, it's like, who are you going to call? You're going to call Ghostbusters or you're going to call, you're going to call the church because all those doctors are sitting around that board table and it, you can tell they're at their last gasp. And like mm-hmm. you just said, well, you know, you might want to think about trying the church and the church is the, is, is the hero or in this case, and I'm going to make my case is the anti-hero. Okay. But there we go. Can I tell you some spinal taps, by the way? Not that I've had one. Turn it up to 11, mate. I used to work in a, this was like a summer job. I used to work at a pain management clinic. I was just doing like clerical work. It when just, did you work in a fucking pain? I've known you your entire life. Yeah. When did you work in a pain management clinic? So you might remember the summer you got me a job at Sporting Life or Yick got me a job at Sporting Life. 
I lasted three weeks and I quit because you quit from Sporty Life. Oh yeah, I did three weeks. I got one paycheck and I bounced because why? Our mutual Sporting Life friend and I went to university with this. My buddy Lauren had this gig working for this pain management clinic as like a cleric, and he's like, yeah, it's just like filing papers. It's super boring. But it paid like 20 bucks an hour. And I think oh. Sporting Life was like 16. So I was okay, like, yeah, yeah. I even told the manager, I'm like, look, buddy, like, unless you can match, like, why would I stay? I'm trying to save money for school. And he's like, yeah, there's nothing I can do for you at that level. So I was like, see ya. So for the next two summers, like, actually, I came back at Christmas too. So I would come back now and again, I'd do some work for them. Uh, I just like filed papers and like all their pain management shit. Anyway, the library room that I worked in where I was like filing and trying to clean up their system was right beside one of the treatment rooms. And in these treatment rooms, um, and we're talking about people who have a, like serious pain, like fibromyalgia, things that are like really hard to live with. They'd be in the treatment room and what they do is they get you out of bed, they get you to stand or maybe they rest you on your knees or something and you're holding this bar and they, they tap your spine, like they're injecting drugs into your back, into your spinal column. I think, man, like, I don't actually know the procedure, but... The pain these people would feel when they get injected, they would scream and shake the wall beside where I was working. And I just hear like, I'd be white, like working all quiet, tapping away, filing papers and all of a sudden be like, ah! <laughs> it was so laugh. scary. No, I know. I, I felt bad too. Cause I would laugh too <laughs> because I was so scared, but also like, oh shit, it's just the guy getting the spinal tap. Okay. But yeah, these dudes, people were getting these really heavy like treatments and, uh, yeah, it was fucking scary. So what are we supposed to make of it? Like, if you're looking at this, how do you take it? Do you take it as, do you applaud this woman for exhausting every facet and every corner of the modern scientific machine? Or do you, or does this, or does it absolutely terrify you for the story you just told and for what you just saw? Like, my God, maybe I should go to the church first or maybe I no. should, should, or maybe I should try something more holistic. It just makes me feel bad for people who have diseases and things that are so, are still outside of our medical knowledge. Yeah, I, actually. It, it never makes, I'm not religious, so I'm never going to be like, hmm, I'll go talk to those guys in that room where you, you're supposed to pull the little. Confession box. The confession. Rob, you need to go to a confession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to tell them like, and like, that's going to make my sickness go away like i don't believe that shit but that's just me man and but if you believe in this stuff i think that's what makes this film way more potent and you even had a interesting little uh, note here that when she's lying down and the get her cat scan the cross in her head it's yeah. kind of, you see this like cross image yeah that's a great little piece of imagery right with the red cross that comes down yeah so yeah. what is the object that is that comes down no, it's the, it's the, it's when you're, and I've had it before. I've, um, it's like the machinery is much more uh, current and modern, but they're doing like MRIs. Mm -hmm. They're doing, you know, like that. Um, so it's the light that the machine is producing on her Yeah, head. that's the target, right? That's yeah. why they put all like the lead on her. So all the radiation when they're doing all the scans. So it's a crosshair. Crosshair is actually a more violent image than a cross, but yeah, it's. It's like really that scene itself. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's just so much like visceral imagery in this movie. And that is one part. He did such a good job of laying, laying the crumbs and just having these awesome pieces that just continue on the narrative of the film. And I think it's so good. 
I actually think the the, the film that we um, that we reviewed had like you know the ten minutes of extra footage at the beginning like didn't need to be there. No. You know what I mean? Like you said, you're like, oh man, this first forty five minutes is so fucking slow. Well, in the in the cut that went to theaters in seventy three. Yeah. Now that's 25 minutes. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, like yeah. that's cut down big. So you can just like the, the, the intro scene where in, they're in Mesopotamia, they're in Iraq, Northern Iraq. It's like three minutes long, man. Mm-hmm. And they just, he ascends to that one area and clearly they've unearthed Pazuzu. So they've, they've unleashed something and then he's going to be able to find her through the Ouija board, through the, through the channel. That's like yeah, three. So, that's like three minutes. That's not fucking fifteen minutes. Yeah. So get get us to the Ouija board, James, because I was a little confused by that one, and you you made a note on that. So she has a Ouija board in the basement. The mom doesn't know how it got there. How did it get there? You know, Hapstance, man. This is a film. This is a story of a girl who's possessed, and this is just. There's a million Ouija boards, but she was just in the. She had the wrong Ouija board at the wrong time, and she was. <laughs> tr- I'm serious. You know what I mean? Wrong place, the wrong time. Like this isn't and, this isn't Hasbro's Ouija board. Ouija, it's just a game, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, isn't it? Parker Brothers kind of fun. No, man, it's not like Pazuzu's dropping the Ouija board in. You know what I mean? Fucking droning it in. Even no. Amazon, it <laughs> Amazon drone this shit in, right? No, man. Iranian drone it in. <laughs> I've had a couple of Ouija board experiences, and I'll be honest, nothing crazy. But there is something ritualistic when you get with a group of people <laughs> and the lights go out and you put your hands on that Ouija board, you start asking questions. Like, does it really move? I haven't heard anything about a Ouija board since I was a kid. I, you know, I, I would use a Ouija board like. You know, me and uh, <laughs> friend of the pod, Michael Yukota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We get the Ouija board out. You know, it, again, and this is something like the Ouija board, the um, the marketing of the Ouija board in the 70s and 80s was, you know, I think a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to sell boards, man. Yeah, you Trying to sell fucking Ouija boards. <laughs> I think Hasbro was a sponsor of this. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Hasbro's got placement. a piece. Hasbro's got a piece. <laughs> they like they like Pepsi wanted to get in there, but they're like, sorry, Hasbro's <laughs> bought up all the uh, the placement in this film. But you know that's but that's true, right? Like, you know what I mean? That the Ouija. It's funny. The Ouija board is 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 used as like the highway, the mechanism, but it's also a product, and. When I look at movies in the 70s and 80s, like product placement is so overt. Maybe that was trying to sell Ouija boards. Rob, we had some funny things to say about some of these characters. We've talked a little bit about Linda Blair, but I'm going to throw it to you right now really quickly. You know, she plays Regan and she's the 12 year old uh, um, daughter of the actress that becomes possessed. Can you just give me like a 60 second uh, a blurb on just how how great her performance was in this film. Okay, so Linda Blair. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Blair was 14 years old when she did this film, and uh, she has to deliver some pretty nasty language and act out some brutal stuff. They did have body doubles for some things that they felt were too much for her, uh, as well as for the actual fighting scenes where she rolls on the floor with Father Carrick. Um, but it was like a bit of a scandal 
for her because a lot of people are like, how could you let this this act this girl do these things? Like she's she's too young for this kind of movie. Like it scandalized her and in certain ways it typecast her because she would go on to do a lot of B movies and a lot of like like cheesy horror B movies. And uh I mean I don't know if they were all good, but Savage Streets looks pretty good. I kinda wanna see that one. If you guys look at the cover of that, it looks fucking amazing. Well, well, well. Look who's here. The game's over, bitch. This time you're dead for sure. First, I'm gonna fuck you. And then, I'm gonna slice you into little pieces. Sounds nice and kinky to me. Too bad you're not double-jointed. Why? Because if you were, you'd be able to bend over and kiss your ass goodbye. And her personal life got crazy too. Like she dated like rock stars. She dated Brick James. Tom Murphy! <laughs> that was cold-blooded! Uh, she was a playboy. She had run-ins with the law. She for drug possession. And, and she was kind of typecast. So she really, her life almost like plays out in a way in a, in a, in her life probably went in a very different direction than it would have gone had she not been in the exorcist. Like I, I can't say that certainty with certainty, but like, it definitely looks like it set off a motion of like her becoming kind of a rough and tumble celebrity. So Linda Blair plays Regan pretty straight. She's a cute little girl. It's really when the devil takes over that you see her really transform and change and her performance really comes alive pretty amazing stuff especially at her age also i believe um let's let me check my notes but she definitely was nominated for she won best supporting actress for gold yeah. globes nominated for the oscars she was nominated for an oscar on this one yeah nominated wow didn't, didn't win but so. like 14 years old that's wild right yeah crazy so, but the other who's the main character here jamie is it her or is it father Karras? i <sighs> I think it's I think it's Jason Miller, Father Karras. He is he is such a great character. I love this guy. He's so naive, but he's so confident. He's like Joe Cool. He's gone to Harvard, but he plays it down at every turn. His smarts, his ability. He's pragmatic. He's flawed. Rob, he's the nineteen seventies antihero. He is mm-hmm. He is the Charles Bronson <laughs> of priest of priests. <laughs> he's the dirty Harry of priests. He is. He's the dirty Harry of priests. He is the Rocky Balboa of priesthood. <laughs> he is like but he is though, right? And and I think this is in, I think this is like indicative of of 70s cinema. And this is 73 like if you look at it, and one of the things that I keep noting in a lot of these horror films, or a lot of the things we talk about, is the urban, is the is the urban element. You know, at one point he's going to see his mom uh, at her place down in like I, I don't know if it's in New York or wherever it is. There's like fucking kids jumping on cars. There's like it's like chaos in the street. This guy's supposed to be a priest, man. Like say something. You know what I mean? Howard Cosell, who would do Monday Night Football. He lived by this doctrine. If I see it, I got to say it. This guy walks right by three kids that are jumping on a car, <laughs> fucking smashing the windows. Doesn't say anything. He's singularly focused. He's a pragmatist at heart. He's going to see his mom. He's got a fucking pot to piss in. But 
to help her out financially, but he's gone to Harvard. He's a psychiatrist. To me, there's a, there's what's happened here. This is this also calls into question. Think about that, Rob. I was trying to be. I was trying to sleuth this. He, he his mother ends up in a public asylum, essentially horrific conditions. Yet he's gone to Harvard. He's like jogging around the track at Georgetown University <laughs> before he goes into priesthood. This guy's like. No, no, he's th- in the priesthood. He is. No, no, no. I know. That's what I'm saying. He's in the priesthood. This guy's going for a fucking jog around the track. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't understand how. I understand it's not how it's going to pay a lot, but he's like they almost play him up like he's brilliant, but he's super flawed. So to me, he. he are, are you he, saying like he sh- he's broke and like why is he broke then? Right? Because he went to Harvard. He should be making a ton of dough. Well, obviously, you know, he one of the scenes in the in the in the in the beginning of the film, he's he's in the boozer with uh, one of the other priests, and he's having a couple of pints, a couple of tall boys. I'm not saying he's an alcoholic. I'm just saying that he's he, lost his faith, but it doesn't mean he's not. No, some I'm just cash I'm just saying he's a he's, I'm just saying he's a pragmatist, right? But just the setup of the character is is interesting to me. An antihero is is a flawed hero. Yeah, Jason Miller, Father Karras, is a flawed hero. Well, this guy's hardcore, like definitely because even when it gets down and dirty, he just punches this little girl in the face. He <laughs> fucking decks her. He's like, fuck you. That's it. And he just starts wailing on her. Oh, do you get- and, <laughs> and that's how you know this guy. This guy doesn't take shit from nobody, right? The One of the best scenes, by the way, there. this is before he punches her. Um, the Pazuzu or whatever, Linda Blair, the, the kid, Regan. It's like he, I forget what happens, but Marin tells him like tie up something, or t- he turns his back on Pazuzu for one second. Pazuzu gets up on his knees, and Star Trek two hand punches Father Karras over the back of the head, <laughs> and Marin doesn't even once stop to say, "Hey, watch out behind you." He just keeps reading the Bible at this guy at, at Pazuzu the whole time, doesn't break, just keeps going. Meanwhile, Father Karras is getting fucking dummied on the floor. It was he so got, funny. He got bam, bam, bingaloed on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny the tag team, right? Father Karras, you know, he is he's such a great character. You mentioned him, Rob. Why don't you talk a little bit about the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Father Marin, the hundred and sixteen year old man they bring in to perform this. Yeah, this guy, like, he's falling apart in his own way, too, right? Like, he's so old now that he's he's drinking on the job to keep his hands steady. He's taking all these vitamins, but, like, they're pills, but they're really not doing what he needs. And what he really needs is brandy and his coffee. <laughs> and, uh, but I think he knows, like, do you think he knows he's about to die? Like, do you think he knows this is his last battle with Pazuzu? Cause, or does he think he's going to win again? Like, I think, like, the, the cinematic setup. And just the filmmaking and the shot when he is, he's like, he's out in Woodstock somewhere doing something. Like it was very ambiguous as to what he's actually doing out in like, I don't know, you know, upstate New York. And then he receives the letter. And if you, it's a great scene too. Like, you know, the, the magic of this movie is in um, the non-obvious. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're discussing the non-obvious. Or sorry, we're discussing the obvious, but the beauty of this film is the non-obvious. It's those little subtle. scenes, like the, su- the the subtlety, the nuance. You you mentioned one, Rob, the cross when she's undergoing one of the tests. It's brilliant when he receives the letter that he's about to uh, that he's been summoned by the higher power to perform another exorcism. 
He looks at it, he looks down, and then he turns immediately and starts walking toward it. But there's a slight pause there. It's amazing. Yeah, he knows what's up. He, he, knows, knows, he, he, knows, he, knows, he knows this is his calling and this is it. Mm-hmm. And then there's one other character that doesn't play a major part in the film, but, you know, pops in here and there. Uh, and this one kind of baffles me a bit, but Lee G. Cobb playing <laughs> Lee, Lee J. Cobb playing the inspector. And he's always handing out movie tickets to people. <laughs> what, what is that about? I was trying to figure this out. Like, is this like his way of like, like greasing the palms of people because they're priests and so they don't take money. So he's like, well, what about movie tickets? I can get you movie tickets anytime. I didn't understand it. Also, I was like, wait, is he trying to like get a like a hand job in the movie theater? Is that is that what this is about? You know what? I was trying to I was play I was like replaying this over my mind about how, you know, cinema was like tight in the seventies and movie tickets would be like very very profitable. Maybe. And I'm just like, no. The fucking mob, the mafia was like big in the set cash spoke in the 70s especially in these urban environments i can't i don't understand and like you said well that's like, he's trying to he's, tr- he's trying to get the he's trying to get the priests on his side for information so that they'll tell him things that come to them through confession so i thought oh, okay he's trying to grease their palms but he's not using money the only thing i can think of is if is if if it like sort of underscores the futility of like you know policing in the realm of religious affairs, right? Right, right? You know what I mean? And just like, and and they're and they're trying to like, like you know, you love to say this, right? Like to wink or nod and just say like movie tickets, just to be silly, right? Like like you're a fucking cop, man. Like, fuck off. You know, what I mean? this is this is between God and the uh, devil. Oh, so you think it's even a joke to itself? But the weird thing is, when I, the, the, I don't the, know. the priest at the end of the movie, the guy's like, and every priest keeps saying the same thing. I've already seen it. And then he walks them arm in arm away. Like, I was totally like, I don't get it. (laughs) And he gets the autograph from the mom, like, while he's interviewing her about a homicide. Like, it's fucking like, dude, that is so unprofessional. Like, yeah, and ask for autographs. I doing a homicide investigation. That's the end of the film, right? Like, the walking away with the priest, just walking away with the priest. Right. And I think there's power in that scene. And Karis. Um, jumping out of the window, sacrificing himself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't need a slide rule to kind of figure out some of the stuff that's happening here, right? Like Catholicism and the ultimate and sacrifice yeah. Jesus and the ultimate sacrifice for the, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. it's right in front of your face. Before we get to the end, Jamie, I want to bring up just a, some of the craftsmanship in this film because, you know, we've talked a lot yeah, about the do, plot, the content, the characters. One thing I thought was really interesting because, you know, I haven't watched this movie in a long time. And so when I watched it again, I was really blown away by the editing. I thought it was really cool. And I, again, I was like repositioning it like, oh, fuck, this is the 70s. Like this is this might have been a little bit like out there back then. I don't know. Like anyway, my point is, especially the opening 40 minutes where Regan is going doctor to doctor to doctor and different appointments and all the shit. The movie becomes like a series of vignettes. Like, yep. yes, yep. they're they're occurring in a chronological order, but there's big jumps in time sometimes, and it's a bit disjointing because you're like, oh, I thought we were just here, but now we're here, and it's two months have passed in between those two scenes, because now she's talking to like a totally different doctor. 
And then other things would happen too, like where a scene where one character, it's, it's the mother I'm thinking of specifically here, but she's completely calm in one scene, cut to another scene. And this is the scene where she's trying to find the father um, of Regan on her birthday. And she's just losing her mind on the phone. Like, don't tell me to calm down. Like, blah. And it's just like, we haven't seen her like that yet. Yeah. And the editing helps make those jumps feel more and more like purposely um, like kind of rough and contrasting to the last scene and like kind of jutting you up against the next moment. And I think it really holds together in an interesting way, despite all that, like it, it kind of, I don't know. I just thought it was very interesting how they were very brave to kind of jump through time so liberally at times. And uh, it's still kind of pieces together and it, it paints the picture that this is going on for a long time before we get to the exorcism part. Yeah. You know what? I, when you first brought that up to me, I was thinking, oh, you know what? Is it really like, to me, it seems the chronology fits. But then when I took a step back and and looked at the film again, I love how you bring that kind of that filmmaking nuance to, to the to the conversation, because you're right. You know, every scene sort of has its own arc. Mm-hmm. It has a it has a beginning, a finish, and an end, and then it sort of moves on to something else. And there can be different sort of times in between each scene. This is something that I'm just coming to me right now. Is this sort of how Tarantino makes his films with that dialogue heavy mm. vignettes and how the how he couples them together? Oh, it's, it, it's so amazing you said that. You know, as movie I was thinking of my head just when you started talking about how each vignette had its own beginning, middle, and end was. Um, True Romance, which he didn't direct, oh. but he wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And the trick to True Romance, what I think is so amazing about it, is that like every scene uh, kicks off directly from the last scene, but like it it takes you to a new location. You're introduced to new new characters quite often, and every scene begins in one spot and it ends in a completely different spot. Like you, there's a, there's a huge change that occurs, and usually it's like almost like a twist ending per scene. Uh, if you think about the opening scene when even the first like four or five scenes when Christian Slater meets the girl, ends up sleeping with the girl, finds out she's a prostitute, but then is still in love with her anyway, goes to find the pimp, right? Gary Oldman. Yeah. At the end of that scene, Gary Oldman's dead. Christian Slater is holding a gun and he's just shot him five times. And now he's escaping <laughs> with a bag of money. Like, like scene for scene, you're not getting what you thought you were getting. Um, and, it, and then it turns into this whole chase story. But like, those first few scenes especially really work so well. And, and that's kind of what happens in this movie is like, yeah, these little vignettes where like you start at one place, you arrive at another one. But then when you jump to the next scene, you're kind of much further along. than Yeah, you thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like how soap operas work where yeah. you've got like five cuts and then you roll through one, two, three, four, five, and then you circle back through one. And I think and I, I kind of want to mention this in in the review, but I kind of want to set you up a little bit. And I think that's where a movie like the original Halloween maybe was a little problematic and a little boring for you. And a movie like this retained a little bit of its, I don't know, like mm-hmm. its strength strength of filmmaking. Maybe the filmmaking was just stronger, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's a good point because one of my criticisms of that film was not a lot is happening story-wise. Exactly, because they're not vignettes. It's just you're seeing like this time continuum and and... They're trying to build tension, but they they're didn't building really, tension, right? Yeah. They didn't really like push forward anything like A to B to C isn't really going anywhere. It's just like you're waiting for Jason to make his, or, uh, sorry, yeah, for, for Michael Myers to make his first move. Uh, we talked about all the characters. We talked about some of the main themes. Let's bring in 
our new and final segment before we go into the review. We're going to call this the Running Scared Award. I'm going to make a run for it. Who got the most exercise making this film? Now, Rob, this can be anybody. This could be an actor. This could be a director. This could be a this could be a key grip. This could be anything, man. Who do you think got the most exercise making this film? Now, the obvious answer is Father Carrick, because we literally see him running laps. <laughs> like, yeah, literally no, see him running some he, laps. There, he's literally, he's literally. <laughs> On the Georgetown track. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, in fact, this movie that like loves to pace itself, he does one lap, the inspector looks at him, and Father Carrick decides to keep going and do another one. <laughs> and it cuts back to when he's finishing the second lap before they finally talk to each other. But I am going to go with uh, Linda Blair, Regan, who lifts beds, gets in fights, uh, rolls around, you know, breaks bonds. <laughs> pukes at people like that there's a workout in this film for sure for her oh yeah for sure man i'm gonna come in with um i'm gonna come in with lee cobb <laughs> <laughs> the inspector for walking around it's reading a newspaper he, at the time no 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 he has to walk to all those movie theaters <laughs> and then walk back <laughs> to the precinct and then walk back to the other movies, movie theaters. You know what I mean? To me, this is like a Sunshine Parker kind of call. You know, off the board, off the bill, Lee J. Cobb coming in for the first annual Running Scared Award. Rob, he's never not walking. He's reading the paper in that one scene. But you know what? I was thinking about this joke would be 10 times funny if you would actually like google mapped him and had his step count because it's like he walks to the campus he walks all the way back to the church back to the... <laughs> this guy's getting his steps in every day you know what next movie next movie we'll get that next movie we'll get that down for sure all right rob um freaking awesome man i this was actually i love this film you love this film this has been amazing talking about it let's review this uh, who's going first i can go first if you want all right hit it Exorcist is still a fantastic film, even if you are not going to be scared by, you know, the effects that may have aged, you know, not so well, like Linda Blair's head turning around all the way around her neck. If you can forgive some of that and just sit back and watch this, I mean, even the puke scenes now seem kind of very 80s and 70s to us, like the fact that she spews that green slime. You got to think about it where it was at at the time. Um and forgive that a little bit. Beyond that, though, it is eerie and it is unsettling, when, especially when you think about someone who can't control who they are, what they're doing, uh, what they're saying to people. Uh, that whole fear of like, how do I help this person? Uh, they're, they're beyond my help. I have to now rely on like supernatural healers. Like that's frightening in its own way. And just the unsettling way that Pazuzu can confront each of his um, adversaries. He knows everything about you. He gets in your brain. He gets in your mind. He he, he haunts you with imagery of your own mother. Uh, he he's a and he's a relentless villain. Like he's a he's just a horrible. You know he's trying to drag us through the mud. I think the line was he's trying to make us feel like animals. Like we're nothing. Like we're nothing special. And the fact that he's willing to like destroy 
uh, a child. He even says at one point, like, oh, I'm, I'll be through with her when she's 10 feet in the ground or something like that, or when yeah. she's being eaten by maggots in the ground. Like, he doesn't care. She's just a vessel to be thrown away like garbage. So when you get into the extremist, like, level of evil that this guy represents, this demon, that's also pretty frightening. And then just great characters and great uh, struggles that they're all dealing with manifested through this exorcism like all confronting them in this in this in this exorcism yeah it's slow at times we definitely watched the film that had an extra 12 or 14 minutes or whatever it was so maybe maybe those aren't needed i think those were there to kind of pad out more character arc uh, for each character like to give more sense of their arc also i think it helps um you understand like the series because they are like you know, they did put out a sequel. They did put out a prequel. They worked on a TV show at one point. This is one of those things they might pull back at some point and do it again. Um, so overall, like the movie succeeds because it's a good film. It's cut well. It has good sound design. It's like, it's it's not trying to gross you out or scare you with jump scares. It's doing like little subtle things to like make you feel like weird and unsettled all the time. And like Jamie said, like I didn't find it necessarily scary, but those little shots of that little demon's face every now and again just to remind you that he's always there that's still very effective to this day so i'm giving the exorcist four and a half steps ah, could i give it a perfect five i just maybe because it's dated a bit i'm but i had i still got to keep it up there on the uh the high regard as a as a, a cornerstone horror movie that's a great review man that's like Awesome, and for you to give a four and a half—that's t- that's you don't do that every day, Rob. Yeah, I mean, it this just, a, it just this... buries chopping ball. Like you know, you know, I was thinking, Jamie, what we should do in our future? Maybe we should get rid of the step counter as our as our as our system because it's so close to the star system, right? Like, who are we kidding here, right? Yeah. But maybe we should do a thing called "Is it better than Anaconda?" And <laughs> Exorcist, I think, is better than Anaconda. Is it better? Listen. It is one of the most classic horror films made. It is um, critically acclaimed by critics and fans. It is a fantastic film. You just laid out a perfect review of The Exorcist. You know, I forgot the performances, though. I, mean, I was just going to say, I'm going yeah, I'm I'm to add a couple. I'm going to add a couple of things. Okay? Yeah. So, one of the things with The Exorcist. It's for all the things Rob mentioned, but it also has one of the most quintessential and perfect soundtracks or lead songs, and and that's the the tubular bells, and it is like the one song that you would absolutely not expect uh, to be connected to this film, but when it's dropped, it fits perfectly. It also contains one of the most iconic scenes and iconic shots that I think I've ever seen in a horror film and that's when the priest steps up to the house and the light is shining and just sort of moves into the mist and the camera is set back and you give the full screen of the priest looking up to the window it's fucking amazing and when I watched it again and especially at that that part it's hard for me to think of a horror film or any film that quite captures the moment and the feeling quite like that does. I also think that the performances are exceptional. Marin as the I'm literally on my way out of this world, 
but I'm going to do everything I can to fulfill my duty for God and and for this girl. Like, he he goes in there. One of the things with, with Marin is that when he enters into the home, he doesn't ask any questions. He is there to do a job. He is a serviceman. I, lo- I love that about his character. And I think it's just so stoic. Father Karras, the flawed anti-hero that is naive, but is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice to do the job. Linda Blair, the 14-year-old actress, bested with like an incredible script, an incredible role, but incredible difficulty to achieve it, did an amazing job. And then Ellen Burson, who, as the grieving mother, I think does an admirable, you know, has a great performance. Uh, It's a movie that, like you said, Rob, is filmed well. At the end of the day, it's a movie that is crafted very, very well with great performances and then multiple stories sort of intermingling on multiple levels. For me, Rob, uh, this is, um, you know, even if it doesn't hold up today, but for me, it does. It does hold up today, Rob. This is um, five footsteps out of five footsteps. So better than Anaconda? This is better than Anaconda. Don't make me out of monster. I didn't eat the Captain Mateo. (laughs) I think that must be the only one though, right? (laughs) Well, was Jason Lives better than Anaconda? Mm. I don't think so. I think Anaconda was probably still better in that film. That's worth a lot of money, Gary. I was thinking about that. You know, we totally didn't even say, which was too obvious. We we kind of mentioned that, like when Jason's resurrected, it's like a Frankenstein thing. But that's why Horshack was there. He was Igor. I didn't even think of that till later. I'm like, oh, he's fucking Igor. That's what it is. That's why he doesn't matter too. He gets killed right away. Anyway. Anyways, Rob. Exorcist better than Anaconda for both of us. Absolutely. Uh, gets nine and a half footsteps when you combine our two scores. Excellent film. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of Running Scared. We are going to be back next time with Candyman, the updated one, uh, written by Jordan Peele. Um, We are looking forward to that. We both watched it. We've been taking notes. We're chatting about it on the side already. And we, of course, have our new Patreon structure, which we mentioned off the top, and our Jogcast is in the works. Looking forward to having some new stuff out soon. Sorry we had a little delay here. We had... uh, Exorcist. Uh, this episode was actually in the can a while ago, but some delays on putting it out, and uh, uh, that's about it. Anything else, James? No, we've been we've been busy, but um, Rob and I are back at it as always, doing what we do, loving about you know loving talking about horror films. Okay, so thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time on Running Scared. The Running Scared podcast is written and produced by Robert Lendrum and Jamie Roberts, with original music by Jamie Roberts. This episode edited by Robert Lendrum. Find us on social media and especially on Patreon. Run back for more horror movie reviews and jogcasts on the next edition of Running Scared. How long are you planning to stay in Reagan? Until she rots and lies stinking in the earth.